Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This is another interview bonus episode of Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about power and how to use it for good and community and how it supports everything that we do. Today, my guest is Matt Zakreski. Did I say that right? Nailed it. Dr. Matt Zakreski, who is with the Neurodiversity Collective. And I thought we would get to talk a little bit about power, about giftedness, which I know he's interested in, about marginalization and whatever else comes up. So Matt, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, and thank you for having me. So my name is Dr. Matt Zakreski. Uh, everybody calls me Dr. Matt, so please feel free to do the same. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist and a advocate for all things neurodivergence and specifically within the LGBTQ community and really just trying to get the word out there about kids with different brains and how to serve them and what our role as stakeholders looks like in that. Fantastic. So you do most of your work with kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kids and teens. That's a really interesting place to start with power. So what do you find, how do you find that their age affects their power? Oh, so kids who feel out of control will control whatever they can. Most of the time that power is expended on adults, parents, coaches, or teachers, right? Sort of those are the big three, right? So, you know, you'll have a kid who doesn't want to go to gym class, who makes it their mission to make going to gym classes their teacher's problem, right? I'm not leaving <laughs> the classroom, right? Because if they feel out of control, if they feel unsafe to go to where that thing might be, they cannot enter into that space. Ergo, they're, you know, they feel out of control. And kids, you know, I mean, they're, it's an intersection, it's an interesting sort of um, intersection of lack of power because they're younger, so there's automatically less power. Mm-hmm. They may not have the skills to articulate what they're trying to say in a way that adults can understand, right? I mean, what we see as professionals is that if I'm running late to be on your podcast, I shoot you a message, hey, I'll be here in three minutes. And you say, cool, thanks, Dr. Matt. And then it's a non-issue. But if a kid is three minutes late to English, they get written up, right? They get sent to the principal's office. They are not afforded that same level of equality, right? Or, I mean, perhaps a better word there is equity. Or, or good grace. I mean, my assumption, if if you message me and you say, hey, I'm running a few minutes late, my assumption is that you have a good reason for being late and that you will be here as soon as possible and you're trying to be courteous by letting me know. Whereas the assumption in a school environment is usually that the child is being disobedient, that the child is being disrespectful. Like there's all this storytelling that we do around the behavior of anybody who has less power than us institutionally or structurally, but especially children and young adults. Absolutely. And what's really powerful and remarkable about that and those conversations is once those narratives take root, 
then, I mean, you know, the horse is out of the barn at that point, right? It's really, so, you know, like once it starts rolling downhill, you are hard pressed to change that. And I can't tell you how often I get into a school system or a community and I start working with a kid or a family. And I, I, I think, wow, three years ago, I would have had a fighting chance. But everybody in this school thinks that Johnny's a giant air quotes, bad kid. So there's right. everything he does or doesn't do through that lens, right? And our, you know, this is where we get into the cognitive biases that maintain power structures. Things like, you know, the fundamental attribution error, right? Mm-hmm. I see my behavior based in context. I was only late because I hit traffic. My goodness, anybody could hit traffic. You see my behavior as an as a reflection on who I am as a person. I, he, Dr. Matt doesn't care. Right. And those conversations get repeated over and over and they're amplified for our black and brown kids, our, you know, our kids of, you know, from low, lower socioeconomic groups and are certainly our LGBTQ kids. And and, you know, and that also happens with our neurodiverse kids and it. our neurodiverse adults. Right. I think that yeah. this storytelling, what I'm calling storytelling, not in a good way. <laughs> I usually love storytelling, but this yeah, thing me that too. Me too, we right? up, where we assign meaning. And, you know, I come from a religious background, you know, I used to be a a parish minister. So when we talk about meaning making, usually that's a good thing. But, but this habit that we have of making meaning out of other people's behavior contributes and compounds in layers, depending on how many marginalizations you're carrying. And by the time you're an adult, if you're poor, if you're disabled, if you're marginalized in any, any way, that thing that you were just talking about where people just decide you're a bad kid carries on. Carries and on. once the system has decided you're a bad kid, it's very hard to get out of it. Yeah. Well, and then the trauma that comes with that creates a self-perpetuating cycle, right? right? Because if I walk into a room with a sword and a shield and realize I've been hurt and disappointed by all these other grownups and all these other systems, I'm going to stab you first before you can hurt me. And then if I stab goes, you first, then you'll be injured and then you won't be able to hurt me as badly. Right. And then everyone goes, well, why is Johnny so aggressive? It's like, you know, I, one of, one of the things my mentor told me early in my career, and I try to keep this in mind is that there's no original pain in the world. Everything's recycled, mm-hmm. right? Everything's, so we're, yeah. we're all playing these dramas out with each other and, and it doesn't excuse behavior, but it provides a necessary context and I think that if I can give one message to the stakeholders who are listening to this, it's, you know, be curious, not critical, right? It's so mm-hmm. easy to be critical, but it's, it's, it, it, you're going to get a lot better return on your investment for being curious. And I think we're trained. That's a really interesting point you bring up because I think that we're trained to be critical, like when oh, with the, absolutely with the, are <laughs> with the intensive expansive framework, I often talk about how you know our culture trains intensives and expansives to be critical of each other. Mm-hmm. Intensives are trained to be like, "Ugh, well, you're boring and slow, and you never come up with a new idea." And expansives yeah. are trained to think of intensives as flighty and irresponsible, and can't you just grow up? And so we go into our work environments, our home environments, our interactions with our children, all with that overlay, that sort of slimy overlay to everything that we're doing. 
and and how can we how can we not? Like, yeah. I guess that's the question. Like we're having this conversation, and clearly you and I have the same perspective from slightly different angles. But the but the question is like for me is how do we change our fundamental habit of doing that? Mm-hmm. It's a culturally supported habit. It's reinforced all around us. It's reinforced by our own desire not to be wrong. We go in and we're like, there's a problem. And then we start looking for the source of the problem. And we would much rather find it outside ourselves than inside ourselves, which is interesting because we can't change anybody but ourselves. Right. But, but how, do we, how do we shift that? You're, you're a psychologist. Like, how, how, do we, how do we change that, that habit of behavior that's, that's so culturally embedded so that we are more curious, so that yeah. we aren't as critical up front? Yeah. Well... I, I will do my best to answer this question and, and I will be the first to admit I don't have all the answers. Sure. I will provide to you what I can, which I think is more than most. So there's, a, there's an exercise I do in family therapy a lot. I call it the supervillain test, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's got a good, it's a good name, right? It's That's catchy. a great name. Yes. So, you know, so let's say, right, I'm your parent and you want to go to the Taylor Swift concert. And I say, you can't, Right. Now, you know, this is a drama that plays out with kids and parents all over the world, right? Not always about Taylor Swift, but she's obviously in the cultural zeitgeist right now. So if it's, if it's not about Taylor Swift, it's because the parent wants to go too, and the kid doesn't want to sit next to them. Right. (laughs) Oh my God, mom, no, stop it. Right. Right. So you're so embarrassing. Yes, I am. Right. <laughs> Whatever the concert is, I mean, listen, it could be Avenged Sevenfold if you're on that mm-hmm. side of the musical spectrum, right? The idea here is I say to the kid, so you know, you want to go to the concert. Your parent wants you to, knows that you want to go to the concert. Your parent knows that if they said yes to you going to the concert, their lives would be easier, right? And the kid says, of course, right? If I got to go, I'll be happy. Awesome. So if your parent knows that and is still saying no, they must have a pretty good reason. And the kid stares at me. I'm like, or they're a supervillain, right? Which is why we call it the supervillain test, right? So either they're the joker. It's always possible. Right? And that's what the kids say. Like, well, maybe my mom is like, maybe your mom is the superhero. I mean, villain, I don't know. But it what it does, it provides a nice backstop to the reframing of this. Like, you know, I mean – I often say to my clients, I have a lot of clients who are in college. I'm like, listen, I can't stop you from going to the frat party. Frat parties can be fun, right? That, you know, it's a whole thing, but I'm going to point out that there are costs to those choices. And I'm going to point out that you have other obligations for being in school and what feels good right now may not feel good tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. And you're going to make the choices you're going to make. Because I'm not a supervillain, but I, I'm going to point out these alternate avenues of behavior because even if your brain stops for a second and goes, well, what if I stayed in for an extra hour and studied? You know, it's not a all or nothing thing. It can be a, even if we take one or two steps in towards the middle, it's better. And that, mm-hmm. that's, you know, I, I think how we drive that behavior change is not by saying, you know, from a organizational perspective, these are bad kids saying (laughs) no kid would choose to feel this way. No kid would choose to act this way. 
right? I say this to administrators all over the country. It's like, listen, you got Johnny who's so upset he punched a hole in the drywall. You think Johnny woke up this morning and thought, you know what I want to do? I want to put a hole in the drywall outside the home ec lab. And, you know, they're like, no, he still should have done it. I'm like, absolutely. No one is going to say Johnny should have done that. But this is where we shift from critical to curious. But my goodness, isn't it worth asking the question, what would drive a kid to lose control that way? Right. And if we're asking those questions, we're giving our kids a fighting chance to be seen as three-dimensional humans. And if they're seen as three-dimensional humans, then we can serve their needs in a meaningful way. Right. Right. I love that. That If, if we can see anybody as a three-dimensional human, we can serve their needs in a meaningful yeah. way. And I, I agree that kids are particularly vulnerable because of the many, many positions they're in in society. But again, I think that we see this increasingly in adult communities as well. And like, what would it be like, you know, if you're in a nonprofit organization and you have that one problem volunteer, like Uh, what is actually going on with the problem volunteer? Because they're volunteering, like they're giving up their spare time and their skill and talent to show up at your organization and try to be helpful. Yeah. So if they're getting in the way, (laughs) yeah, what's happening? Yeah. You know, and this gets into this gets into one of my you know tenets of of therapy is something that I, I often you know talk about and refer back to is this idea that you are allowed to feel however you feel about whatever happens to you. That is your right as a human being, whether you are the CEO of the company or an unpaid volunteer of the company whether you are the principal of the school or a second grader in the school. But it's what you do with those feelings that matter. So if you're that unpaid intern, right, or you know, you're giving your time, you have a right to be upset about how you are treated. You are giving something up. And you are entering into a social contract with that organization that says, by me doing XYZ, you're going to give me ABC. And ABC may be as simple as a letter of recommendation treating me with human dignity and respect. But what's the thing that happens to our unpaid volunteers? They don't get paid with dignity and respect, right? You know, people hold the letter over their head like a, like a cudgel, right? It's like, Oh, you better keep giving us extra more unpaid labor. We won't give you that letter, right? It's a whole thing. Yeah. Or, or it's even simpler than that. It's, it's people volunteer because they want to feel like they're contributing meaningfully to something in the world that's improving things instead of just whatever else they do in the rest of their life. And and the relationship between the volunteers and the organizations, especially these days, what we're seeing a lot in volunteer-driven organizations is that the people are tired. People are super tired. They just don't have it to give. Mm-hmm. And when they don't have it to give, they don't give it. They That's one of the places where they cut back in their kind of emotional and energetic budgets and then the organizations start to pressure them. And when I see that happening, I'm always like, uh, can we talk about consent? Yeah. Can we talk about consent-based volunteering? <laughs> but, but the organizations are feeling so desperate for survival that they continue to pressure and continue to pressure. And what ends up happening is, of course, the relationship deteriorates. Mm-hmm. Because that's not, on either side, that's not 
who we want to be or how we want to be. And I think you're right that when kids, when kids find themselves backed into a corner, they, like everybody, are more likely to act in a way that they would rather not act. And so this question of, of what might be causing that, and for me, there's a second layer, which is what if it's not wrong for them to need or want the thing that they need or want? Yeah, I mean, the that gets into this idea, very similar concept of you're allowed to feel however you feel, you're allowed to want whatever you want. It is worth working with the kid to find a compromise, the person, not just kids, like the compromise. Like, you know, if you need certain things at work to feel successful, you know, like let's say, like use a, something else from the cultural zeitgeist, you say, to be successful at work, I need to work from home full time. And the company mm-hmm. says, we need you in the building full time. What I work with a lot of companies in my role as a consultant is say, like, listen, there are, what, 12, 20 days a year the person actually needs to be in the building, the all calls, the corporate meetings, the blah, 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 blah. I was like, so listen, my client will guarantee they'll be there those 20 days. If you let them work from home any other day that they do not need to physically be in the building. And 99% of companies are on board with that these days. They're like, that's fine, right? We are edging ever so slowly out of COVID, right? And it's the idea that a lot of people, especially if you're neurodivergent, do better working from home. And that's not even getting into issues of, you know, equal access to things from socioeconomic perspectives or something more, insidious like how our country is wildly under-equipped to handle people who have handicap needs, right? right? But the idea is, accessibility needs, I mean, but the idea is, is that instead of it being all or nothing, can we focus on what helps a person be successful rather than inverting the narrative into only focusing on what they can't do, right? Um, So so that, yeah. So let's look at it from the power holders perspective for a minute. So we're talking about the teachers, we're talking about the principals, we're talking about the coaches, we're talking about the bosses and the CEOs. What do you think, what do you think, I won't say forces, but what do you think causes people to lean into that power, to, to grasp it and try to hold on to it and try to like prove that they're powerful. Cause you can tell when you see some of these memos from the CEOs of companies and you can tell when you're a kid and you're listening to the principal talk, like sometimes they have a point and sometimes they do not have a point and their whole point is just to feel like they have power. Ding, ding, ding. Right. So, so here's sort of how I see it. Here's how I think about it. You said you were a youth pastor before, right? I was a I was mostly a parish minister, but I did I, long ago. I was yes. Okay. And I've been through almost parish- every position. <laughs> you you took the tickets, you know. You you know you did all the things, right? You played the organ. Um, mm-hmm. When you're in those close. right, when you're in those positions, do you know everything that's happening in your religious organization? It depends on how small the organization is. <laughs> right. And there are some very small ones out there, but I would argue that even if you've got 17 people in the room, there's no way to know everything that's going on. Right. And some leaders can accept that as a cost of 
doing business, the inorganic limitations of being a person, and some leaders can't. You know, I find the more stressed out that leaders get, the more they seek to control and they enter into what we call the paradox of surveillance. The more you surveil, the more you realize there's need to be surveilled. So you surveil more, then you find that you need to surveil more. But in doing so, you drive your employees out, right? Because nobody likes to be surveilled. So there's a, there's a unhappy, uneasy marriage of we know they're going to get away with some things and I want them not to get away with things. So like, how do we find that middle ground? And but, mm-hmm, yeah. But when we treat people like humans, I think there's a lot less to get away with. Absolutely. Right? There's, you, you, absolutely. There's a lot more that's, that's not actually getting away with something, but somebody often, you know, it's, I'm going to draw a parallel to drug use here because often people are, when people are taking street drugs, the reason they're taking them is because they're self-medicating and they can't get a hold of any other way to treat whatever it is, the pain, the mental health issue, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And similarly, when people are quote unquote getting away with something at work, often they're just allowing themselves the space to be human in a way that the technical rules don't permit. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely and, you know, when I, I used to work in travel sales and. Really? That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I was very good at that. But I even, I struggled with some parts of that job because I'm not a very good, like, aggressive salesman. I'm better at making relationships and like, mm-hmm. you know, let me work with you to figure out your needs. And so they put me on the advanced sales team. Right. And so people were mm-hmm. going to travel like two years before they were actually going to do it. So we could fundraise and I could get to know them and all these wonderful things. And I was great. I was sending sales records left and right. But one of the things about me is in addition to being a gifted kid, I also have ADHD, which means I need to take mm-hmm. a lot of micro breaks. Right. I'm the person who like will have ESPN up on one screen and my work thing up on the other screen. And I'll be like, you know, writing writing emails on the phone, but also checking my fantasy football team. And it would drive my boss crazy. You can't work that way. It was like, I have to work this way because if I force myself to white knuckle through it, I'm going to burn myself out and be less productive. Give me a 90 second micro break to read something about the starting pitcher for the Yankees. And that scratches that dopamine itch and I'm back in the game. And I'm like, and listen, my numbers speak for themselves. The nice thing about that is that there's a quantitative argument to be made to like, oh, he's actually really good at this. Right. And the idea that, oh, you would be better if you only did it my way is ridiculous, but so pervasive because of what Pace and Kylie call the common error, which is kind of believing that everybody else operates the way we operate. And so if your boss would have gone ahead and, and turned everything off and gotten into like really focused mode with nothing else going on, then your boss is going to assume that you too would function better. And so you would be even more productive than you already are. And your numbers would be even better if you would just do it the way that he would have done it um, or she would have done it. And yeah. uh, no, actually people yeah. vary. Yeah. Well, and to me, you know, it gets to this idea of – so oftentimes I, what I use is the language of top-down versus bottom-up thinking, 
right? Mm -hmm. So top-down thinking is our default. We want things to be perfect. We want things to be our way, right? And, you know, and like um, we just passed Thanksgiving. Did you celebrate Thanksgiving? No. Okay. So in your mind, what's on a traditional Thanksgiving plate or table? Like what's on the table at a traditional American Thanksgiving? Usually? Yeah. Turkey and... Cranberry sauce and some kind of very overcooked vegetable dish and gravy and uh, sometimes cornbread. And then then it diversifies depending radically upon the family and its culture. Um, my father used to stuff the turkey with palau. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I've, bossy, I've never heard that before. That's awfully neat. My father is Indian. And so yeah. he took a rice dish that's usually cooked in turkey broth and yeah. he stuffed it into the turkey or in chicken broth and he stuffed it into the turkey. It was great. That's awesome. Right. You're putting your own twist on it. Right. Right. So if I have in my head as an, maybe it's a bias I have never addressed before. Right. But if I have in my head, this is what Thanksgiving looks like. And I have never seen a Thanksgiving table with Palau in it. I wanted it to be perfect up here and any deviation of that is seen as worse, right? It's a disappointment. It's a letdown, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas bottom up thinking is I could have nothing on the table, but I have cornbread. That's something. I have cranberry sauce. That's something. I have mashed potatoes. That's something. I have turkey. Oh, it's got palau in it. That's another something, right? Right. It's aspirational. It builds on itself. So, I often, I often tell schools and organizations like you completely in your own brain, you have this idea of the model student, the model employee. And, and if you are not treating people as individuals, you are treat you are judging them all based on this unspoken top down thinking where good employees are X and anything mm-hmm. other than X is bad. And you don't mean it that way, but that's what your brain shortcuts to, right? When you think about neurodivergent kids who don't socialize like other kids, who don't sit still Mm -hmm. like other kids, who don't raise their hand like other kids, who don't answer questions like other kids, they are running afoul of all of those implicit biases, not for anybody's fault, just because those are brain differences. And if we do bottom up thinking, it's like, wow, Johnny is super passionate, but Johnny has a tough time raising his hand. I'm going to add in more interactive game style things in my class. So Johnny's uh, struggles with raising his hand are going to be a little bit more neutralized. Then Mm -hmm. you are accommodating that organically and helping him be more successful rather than saying, well, he's a square peg and I'm a round hole and I'm not going to change. So he's going to have to rip off all the parts that make him him. By God, you know, you know, it's like when you said, you know, things, uh, things, you know, I asked you, like, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, you're like, no, not this year. And we were still able to make that work. Like, you know, it's not a, I'm not making any assumptions. I'm using the relationship you and I have to create something organic and authentic between us so we can find a workable example. Right. Right. I'm like, no, of course you do. My God. Like, (laughs) how dare you not? Right. That's ridiculous. But we do this all the time. And those shortcuts hurt us and hurt our kids. Mm-hmm. 
So you go into a lot of different kinds of organizations. You've mentioned schools, you've mentioned companies, you've mentioned one-on-one counseling situations. What would you say if, if you could like shift the way that power structures work, if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing, what would it be? I would have everybody start focusing on what people can do rather than what they can't. That would be my goal. That would be my purview. I would say, you know, we want to search for strengths. We don't want to be deficit detectives because once you see a deficit, then it's like a black hole. It's like punching a hole in the bottom of a jug because Mm -hmm. water's just going to drain out of it. Right. You know, um, are you a basketball fan at all? I'm not. No, that's fine. Are you familiar with uh, the the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal? He's in a lot of commercials and such now, right? So Shaquille O'Neal, Hall of Famer, Mm multiple-time NBA champion, MVP, all those things. You know what he was famously unable to do? No. Shoot free throws. The easiest shot in basketball, right? You get to stand in the lines 18 feet from the basket. You get to shoot unimpeded at the hoop Mm -hmm. if you're fouled, right? Shaq was notoriously terrible at that. And the whole narrative of his career, right, was was sort of became like warped by this fact that he couldn't shoot free throws. But you'll notice the things I said about it first, NBA champion, Hall of Famer, MVP, it doesn't diminish those things, right? But if all we focus on the fact that Shaq can't shoot free throws, I mean, we miss the rest of the story, right? So, so okay, so Sally has a tough time sitting in her chair in class. You know what doesn't hurt anybody? If Sally can wander around the classroom when the teacher's talking, right? Right. When we focus on Sally's intelligence and attention and willingness to engage with the material, we in, we inherently change how we feel about Sally and thus our expectations and willingness to accommodate her change along with it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's – it's amazing how a simple shift of focusing on strengths allow, you know, cascades downhill and allows us to see a lot more powerful things and positive things about our kiddos and really about our employees and our partners and our friends. You know, I'm sure you've got a friend who's never on time, right? You know, you guys are having dinner at eight o'clock and you got to tell that friend, like, it actually starts at seven, so they'll be there by eight. Yeah. Right. But if you. I used to- my mom, actually, when I was in high school, my mom, I, I was never on time for anything. Yeah. So one day I was supposed to be at a conference and I was leading, helping to lead the conference. It was like, yeah. I was like 15 or 16. And uh, I knew that I would not be there on time. And I was at the top of the organizational hierarchy. And so I was like, yeah. I have to be there on time. So I told her it was literally 40 minutes early and we got there and she was like, oh, you're late. You got to go in right away. And I said, no, actually I have 10 minutes. <laughs> she was like, What? So yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, isn't that, isn't that the sort of thing, but you wouldn't not go to the conference we wouldn't not invite you to dinner because you run late. We mm-hmm. would work to accommodate that. Right. And this gets back to the inherent power down positions of being a kid. Whereas with adults, we would find, we find workarounds with kids. We expect them to do right. And, and broader educational systems in this country are not about creativity or intelligence. They're about compliance. Follow the rules and you'll be okay because the system is based on our willingness and ability to follow rules. You know, we, we educate 
millions of children. There, I, there need to be rules and structures. I, I get that. But when we get so married to those things, we lose the humanity of the people we're trying to teach and, and reach. Yeah. I mean, what happens if a kid slips in a few minutes late and sits down in a chair and starts taking notes? Nothing. It happens all the time Nothing. in college. College is ostensibly a more rigorous academic environment. Mm-hmm. So I think the compliance piece is really interesting because I think in the last seven years or so, people have really come to an awareness of how little compliance actually supports a healthy adulthood and have started to really question this idea of training ourselves through childhood and well into adulthood for compliance. There are obviously things that benefit from regular attention. Like if you're trying to develop a skill, my East Coast partner has taken up ceramics and goes four times a week because she just loves it. And has she become a remarkable ceramicist in the last two years? Yes. Yes, she has, because that kind of regular practice helps. But but I also think that that's not the same as teaching compliance. And we mix those two things up. Compliance and discipline are not the same thing. Right. Because nobody made her, made them be a ceramicist. Right. It was, it was, it was freely chosen, not forcibly given. And, you know, I mean, you know, we were talking about like volunteer organizations before, right. You know, you ever been voluntold to do something, right. Like (laughs) I'm going to need you to do this out of the goodness of your heart. Right. And it's, and it's, and it's wild. And we wonder why people are, are burnt out and frustrated and disenfranchised, you know, like, it says things like, where do you work? Like, how often do you come to the office? Some people want to come to the office, right? Let them. Yes. Some people need to work from home. Let them. It hurts no right. one, right? Right. You know, a simple thing we can give to kids in schools is some kids are great at chapter tests. Some kids want to write a paper. Some kids want to do a PowerPoint presentation. If you give those, instead of you must take a chapter test, you give them those three choices. The data on this is overwhelming. Kids engage more, they learn more, they get better grades, and they're happier. Who wouldn't want that, right? right. That, that well, is a win-win. <laughs> I think the challenge that we face then is that we undercompensate our teachers, and that's a lot of work, and we give them class yeah. sizes that are too big, and then mm-hmm. it's an overwhelming amount of work, and we literally have conflicting access needs. We have the teachers who have a need to have a reasonable workload and are being given more and more to do with fewer and fewer resources, and we have the students who absolutely need all that flexibility and all that attention and all that rich, rich sort of fertile soil to grow in. Well, and that's, and that's when you get into this idea of, you know, like, you know, completely upending how we, what education has turned into over the last 25 years or so, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like moving away from the standardized test, building in more unstructured time, bringing back recess, bringing back gym, bringing back the arts, you know, I mean, people like, well, you bringing back 20 person class sizes. Yeah. And (laughs) And, you know, and people say those like, well, you work with gifted kids. You want more STEM. I'm like, I love STEM. STEM is great, but not STEM at the cost of having a 40 minute lunch period where you can talk to your friends and, and, you know, decompress a little bit, you know, yeah. like kids should have moments in the day where they don't have anything to do. Yeah. And they're like, no, they shouldn't because kids who are the kid that I'm like, they, they, they can't, they, I mean, what, what how are they going to be productive? 
Idle Hands of the Devil's Playground. Oh, would you stop? Yeah, would you? What year is it, 1951? Right. I mean, it's it's wild. You know, I I cannot tell you how many kids I work with who have 17 extracurriculars, who don't Mm -hmm. have a free night. And then they'll do things like they'll play video games for an hour and their parents will be like, how are you wasting your time? And I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. When I was video game, when I was a kid, I played video games all the time. Yeah. Nobody said anything about it, right? It's like we've gotten this like hyper achieving thing, and and you know we're burning ourselves out. I mean, yeah. the the best way to get out of the rat race is to stop being in the rat race. Is to say I'm good. I don't need I don't need this, right? Mm-hmm. Which we can do if we're well enough compensated at the work that we do, which again, sure. capitalism is an, an absolute disaster right now. Oh, um, end stage capitalism is a, it's a whole thing, you know, I mean, it it's, you know, and I mean, it's, it's so funny. Like when I started doing this work, I was getting really involved in the system side of it. And I said to my mentor, I was like, I was like, Jackie, I feel like if I'm going to untangle this stuff, I have to untangle everything. And she goes, yep. I'm like, but that's going to be really hard. And she said, yep. (laughs) No. She's like, I'm sorry. If you want to change the world, you have to change the world, right? It's like, you know, how we view human worth and dignity, you know, concepts of basic income, concepts of what we are owed to be a part of a society. I mean, these are fundamental questions and, and it's the sort of thing. I'm a realist, right? People often describe me as aggressively pragmatic, right? I know I'm not going to get all these things, but you damn well better believe I'm going to keep asking for them because every time I ask for them, you know, we get a little closer to getting that thing. And when we get a little closer to getting that thing, we feel better, so we do better, right? It becomes right. a virtuous cycle, unlike the vicious cycles we talked about before, right? When we empower people, when we give them hope and structure, they do better, which helps them engage more which then helps them do better, which helps them engage more, right? You know, I cannot tell you how often I'll talk to a school and they're like, well, this kid can't get into the gifted program because their grades or behavior aren't good enough. I'm like, put them in the gifted program. Their grades and behavior will be good enough. Exactly. And I was lucky that I knew how to be compliant enough to get into the gifted program, but I would have been a nightmare if I had not. Yeah. And this is, and this is where we make questions of neurodivergence a question of equity, right? Because we wouldn't say to someone in a wheelchair, well, you didn't behave well enough to use your wheelchair today. People do. Well, obviously they do, right? And that's, I mean. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. <laughs> but it happens. Right? We wouldn't take away somebody's insulin pump. We, but at the same time, we also do that as a society, right? right. Like, I mean, it's the sort of thing, like. From a society, from a sociological lens of bottom-up thinking, everybody deserves the things they need to succeed, and those things are unalienable, right? That I means like, we're going to go a Jeffersonian language here, right? Unalienable rights. If you need a walker, you need a walker. If you need accommodations, you need accommodations. If you need glasses, you need glasses. And nobody, by hook or by crook or by act of government, can take them from you. Right. If we allow people to build higher floors, then they will get higher ceilings. Right now, we are putting people in the basement and wondering why they can't reach the roof. 
you know, and that's, once again, it's one of the fundamental problems with how we've built things is it's turned into this, you know, I mean, brutal rat race and we're not focusing on the things that serve us. We're so busy trying to, sur- we're so busy trying to survive. We forget to thrive mm-hmm. and nobody learns good in survival mode. They learn right. good in thrive mode. Right. And, you know, just like your partner, like, you know, you've got to be stable enough to want and be able to, and to afford the ceramic classes. But once right. you can do those things, you thrive in ceramics. Unlike in high school, they're like, if you don't pass ceramics, you're not going to graduate high school, John. <laughs> and you're like, ah, how do I do the wheel? It's terrifying. It's right? awful. It's, it's awful. awful. When I got to graduate school and decided that I wasn't going to go and do more graduate school, although maybe I will eventually change my mind, but graduate school is expensive. Um, yes. I decided uh-huh. I was going to take all the rest of my classes pass fail. Yeah. Because Smart. I wanted, I have, I have always been in so school smart. to learn. I've yeah. always been in school to learn, and I knew that if I was too distracted by the grades, that I wouldn't take academic risks that I wanted to take. I wouldn't do creative yeah. things that I wanted to do. I was in what I was in my first semester, my first uh, trimester in in graduate school. I had four, three, four journals assigned, like a three different, three or four different teachers, and every single one of them wanted us to keep a journal because that's mm-hmm. what seminary is like sometimes. <laughs> And (laughs) I had one professor who was like, listen, you can, if you don't want to keep a written journal, because I know you're doing a lot of writing and you just got here, any of you can choose to keep some other kind of journal. Just check check in with me and let me know what you're doing. So this was back in the last days of film photography. So I had this little tiny Canon micro compact 35 millimeter camera that my parents had gotten me in fifth grade for a trip to Gettysburg and it was still operational and I carried it around in my pocket everywhere. And I took all these pictures of Chicago. I didn't really Mm -hmm. like Chicago, but I took all these pictures of Chicago looking for the beauty in the city. Right. I would never have taken that risk if I had thought that, Oh my God, I have to make sure I get an A in this class. Yeah. So how I'm going to bring us back to the how do we shift it question because I think it's so important and I think everything that you and I are both pushing uphill about would be like a third of the weight if we could shift it if we yeah. could bring and and mostly I work with leaders there that are trying to form organizations and communities that are trying to do it differently One of my clients was literally the company is called the new fashioned company because she was that committed when she formed the company, she was that committed to making sure that she did things differently. And she figured if she put it in her name, she could never forget that that was part of the rules. And she has a great organization and the people there are wonderful. And I had a great time working with all of them, but, but the, how do we shift the zeitgeist? So it's not just, you know, 10, companies owned and run by women of color that are doing yeah. this work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I, I always jokingly call when I do professional development for schools or companies, I always say that I want to call the PD arm of my comp of my company PD that doesn't suck LLC because my <laughs> professional development doesn't suck. Right. And right. so much of it does. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I would have us do as a way of reframing these conversations, right, 
is imagine we were going to plan a theme party, right? So pick a theme, Leo. Pick a theme. Whatever theme you want, right? What should our theme be for a theme party? 18th century costuming. Let's go. I love it. I'm here for it. Now, guess how, guess how much on a scale of 1 to 10 I know about 18th century costuming? Probably not much. It's a pretty niche interest. You would be absolutely correct about that. So that is going to put me in a traditional model in a powered down perspective, right? I don't know what okay. you know. Ergo, I have less power, right? Mm-hmm. But there are skills I have. There are things I bring to the table that are that are power neutral that exist intrinsically to me, mm-hmm. right? So I'm good at mix and drinks, right? Could we have cocktails at our 18th century? I'm sure that there are 18th century cocktails. You could probably watch Max eating history on YouTube and find out what the cocktails should be. There you go. Right. (laughs) So I, even if I'm not passionate about 18th century costuming, you could put me in an ascot and one of those cool revolutionary war waistcoats and Mm -hmm. I could make, you know, I can make you a gin fizz. I'm not sure. You know, whatever fun placeholder we could come up with. Right. A shrub. Right. Maybe it's not something that sets my world on fire, but you found the overlap between the thing you want to do and my skill set. Right. Right. And then for the listeners who can't see his hands, he's definitely doing the Venn diagram. Definitely doing the Venn diagram thing. Right. Yes. Yes. I'm both Italian and ADHD and from New Jersey talking with my hands. (laughs) If you, if you handcuffed them to my chair, I'd be like, I couldn't do it. Right. It's as good Um, as a gag. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, But that's the thing. And then, so we put people in situations to succeed based on their skills and interests. And then we reset those conversations every time we do something new, right? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes the, the skills apply across different things, right? Someone who's good with financials can probably always be your financial person, right? Right. But sometimes, you know, if we switched our 18th century costume party to a craft beer extravaganza, I want to host that thing. I love craft beer. (laughs) I will talk to you about it until you're blue in the face, right? Right. So I'm not going to bartend that party. I'm going to MC that party, right? Right. I I would still be a good bartender, but I'm a better, even better fit. I'm an A-plus fit at this other thing. Right. Part of having healthy schools, healthy communities, healthy organizations is, you know, my favorite word is nimble. You've got to be nimble. And the nimbleness allows us to shift constantly within the dynamic changes of assignments, roles, tasks, and people based on the things that come our way. Right? So a lot of people don't like change. What supports individuals in being more nimble. Like if I'm a leader and I want to be more nimble, but I can feel that resistance every time I have to do it, what will help me be more nimble? What will help me be better at it? Yeah. So one of the things that's going to help you be more nimble is to, is to invert the question of what works, right? How many times in your life have you been successful when somebody told you what to do? And how many times in life have you been successful when someone gave you some ownership, gave you a voice, a seat at the table, right? It really what depends you, on how much I know about it. Well, right. And <laughs> but those are sort of the reframe questions that start us thinking in this way because we can't 
snap our fingers and get people suddenly okay with this. It's a process. But often what I tell organizations is like, listen, the way you're doing it, is it working for you? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, then really, what do you have to lose? Right? One of the most powerful mental reframes that exist is I already don't have the thing I want. So if I go after it, the worst thing that happens is nothing changes. If you don't have a healthy organization and you make some changes to empower your employees towards having a healthy organization, you know, if you swing and miss, well, you, your organization is what it was. Right. Your organization isn't suffering. Right. It can only, literally, it can only improve. And if you allow that reframe to take root, you realize that you are far more empowered to change than your anxiety brain might be telling you. Because your brain is be like, or, or, but if you try to change, everything will go terrible and you'll die. It's like, and listen, that that's a non-zero chance. Like, you, you might, it might go poorly for you. So what I hear you saying underneath this, I'm trying to get to the next level down. And what I hear you saying yeah. is that people need to be, people need to feel either safe or secure or like the risk is low, something in that neighborhood. Can you yeah. go into that a little more explicitly? Right. Because when we, when we move from a place of, okay. So one, some language that's helpful to do this is moving from anxiety to fear, right? Anxiety keeps us stuck, right? It's fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to – anxiety freezes us because it's like, well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if this? And it's paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. Fear gives us permission to move. Fear is flight, mm-hmm. Right. You know, I always say to people, it's like, if a bear burst into your living room right now, what would you do? They're like, well, I would run for my life. Of course you would, because there's a bear in your living room, right? <laughs> we hope that, well, we hope that you would do so in a slow enough way that you didn't get the bear to run after you. Yeah, right. <laughs> ah, that, that's bad. That's bad. Right. But the idea here is, weirdly, it's get, this gets back to like when people, leaders are more anxious, they tend to over surveil, right? Nobody likes mm-hmm. to be surveilled. It's acknowledging that that we're always going to be a little anxious, that we can't live a life without anxiety. But if we accept that the anxiety will always be there, then all we can do is move forward in a way where we feel more empowered to deal with it, right? Because what we're doing right now doesn't work, right? So if we allow ourselves to try something new, to, in, to think outside the box – what ends up happening is the worst case scenario, the anxiety is still there. The best case scenario is we develop some coping strategies to work with it, you know, that come back to things like trust, open communication, right? And, you know, I mean, listen, I work with a lot of teens and mm-hmm. I carry a lot of their secrets, right? Mm-hmm. And and their parents are like, well, are they doing bad things? I'm like, of course they are because they're teens. That's what teens did. <laughs> do. I, I was a great kid and I still did stuff I wasn't supposed to do because that's what part of being a teenager is. Right. Being it's a successful, appropriate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> being a successful parent of a teen being is really about anxiety management, right? You can live in the space of I am letting some of the little things go, the anxiety. So if something serious happens, my kid will come to me, ergo the fear, Right. Okay. 
your kid might have had a sip of a beer in the woods one time. And if you let that go, your kid is going to be that much more likely to call you from a party where their person who's supposed to drive them home is really drunk. Right. Right. And from an organizational perspective, right, trusting your employees that they may go on their phones while they're on their clock sometimes means that if they are drowning overwhelmed at work, they're more likely to ask for help because you haven't nitpicked them to death. You've shown, like, we don't need to be perfect to be worthy of trust, Mm -hmm. right? Our flaws make us interesting, make us valuable. They don't diminish our worthiness, our trustworthiness, anything like that. And as an, and the healthiest organizations understand that there are ways to accommodate that, that don't hurt morale, that don't hurt the bottom line, that don't hurt productivity, that actually empowers us all to do better by treating each other with empathy and respect. Mm-hmm. So if you could create better conditions for leadership so that leadership will create better conditions for the kids, for the students, for the people in their systems. What conditions would you create for the leadership? The conditions I would create is, is the gift of time. When we get sped up Mm -hmm. as educators, as parents, as mental health professionals, as podcasters, as leaders, that's when we make mistakes because we're moving from a place of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard to think best when we are panicked. So, you know, one of the things when I worked for the sales company, one of the things they did so well is that after every season, sales season ended, there was a couple of days where we just took a breath as a company. Like, yes, the phone still rang and we still were responding to emails and stuff like that. But the new sales goals didn't start for four to five days, depending on how the calendar fell. And I don't know how intentional that was, but it was one of those things as an employee, I remember thinking always like, oh, this is so smart because I can't just jump into another season. I've got to decompress. We've got a level set here. And what you'd find is that leads to a healthier thing. So as a organization, you know, Taking the time to have staff meetings, to connect with people, whether it's within teams, as a company, as a, you know, as an organization, the time you invest in those things repays itself with a healthier organization, happier employees. So I would give people the gift of time because what that does is it creates those deeper relationships. People feel more empowered. Feel, people feel like they can ask for the things they need. So they get them, so they do better, right? It becomes that virtuous cycle. But if we're all sprinting towards that finish line, I can't ask you for something because I'm too busy running, and you can't hear me because you're too busy running. So it's really, it's like, let's step out of that capitalist death spiral and say, let's do a scotch left, let's, let's lose a little quantity to gain significant quality. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... You know, you're not going to lose much money for it, if anything. I think you actually would make more in the end because you're moving from a place of, I trust you as my employees to invest the time in you. And I trust us as an organization that we can take a day off from the grind to reconnect as a, as a staff, as a team, to reset, to 
have a meeting to get charged up. And we're all, yes, we're all going out to dinner and it's going to be awesome. And yes, it's going to cost the company $37,000 because that's a lot of chicken fingers for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? But people are going to come back in on Monday, ready, rare to go, ready to jump through a brick wall for you because you've treated, you, you never forgot to, you, you didn't forget to treat them as people. Right. Right. It's not the pizza party solution, which some oh. people reasonably complain about it. It's, it's about remembering that your people are people and making sure that you can take care of them in the way that you need to. So imagine with me that it's 30 years out. Uh-huh. 30 years from now, you and I and all of the people like us have been working our tails off to make the world a different place. And we have managed to get where we need to go. We've managed to get to the tables and get into the boardrooms and we have made a solid case. We've made a solid enough business case that we've actually shifted the system. Yeah. What's it like to live in a world where we've managed to demarginalize everybody? When we've demarginalized everybody, it means that anybody can knock on any door they want and have a fair chance to get in. And I say chance, not that like there, not that there should be gatekeeping. Right. But, but there are questions of pragmatics, right? Like, you know, just because I want to go to Harvard doesn't mean I can go to Harvard. Right. But True demarginalization means that, you know, from the richest kid from the richest town in America to a kid growing up in the poorest city in America or shoot in the world has a legitimate pathway to get to the places they want to go. Right. Mm -hmm. And and this is where, you know, I try to center a lot of my work in equity around this idea. It's like nobody is more privileged than me. Right. I am a cisgender, heterosexual, white male with no visible disabilities who has a doctorate, you know. Yeah, you're pretty I, high up on the I, I mean, like, <laughs> there, there's not much, you know, there's not much I'm missing, right? Like, I am, I am a little bit taller than the average. I'm within an average weight. I'm relatively good looking. Like, there are, like, I'm checking a lot of privileges, right? And, and people expect people like me to be in charge, right? There's just, that's one of those cognitive biases we talked about before. Now I'm going to use that to build a bigger table, not a higher fence, right? right? Because I cannot sit here from my position of privilege on privilege mountain up here going, I therefore have better ideas than everyone else. (laughs) Because I don't, that doesn't mean my ideas are bad, right? Right. But I will be the first to acknowledge my path to this table has been shorter and easier than a lot of other people's, right? So we are going to remove a lot of the systemic barriers. We're going to open more doors. We're going to grease some skids. We're going to put some more stuff downhill for people, right? Because my goodness, like when we can put more voices in the choir, the choir always sounds better, Mm -hmm. you know? And golly, I mean, like, you know, so a demarginalized world means everybody gets to play. Yeah. Yeah, when I imagine that 
it's a really complicated imagining. Yes. Because the more things you imagine, the more things I imagine, demarginalizing, the more things there are that could be, the more inclusiveness could be. I have a colleague, C.B. Beale, who has a, a framework called preemptive radical inclusion. And they Ooh, do. Like it, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Definitely look them up. And, and they do incredible work specifically around kind of 360 inclusion. Uh-huh. And it, it, it changes everything. We just did, I just, I've been interim directing a small organization for the last year and we just had our conference. And one of the things that this organization is really committed to is inclusion. And so we did, you know, levels of inclusion protocols that most people would not have considered, especially not for such a small gathering. And uh, it was, it was wild to see people change what they understood to be possible by experience Uh rather than by theory. Not, oh, well, we could, but, but to have people actually show up and be fully included and and so I imagine that that a world where even if we haven't managed everybody, we've managed much more orders of magnitude more than we do now, is a world where every decision is probably more complicated. Right. Everything we do is probably more complicated and simultaneously infinitely simpler because there's no debate. Right. And... And I mean, I I would see that our theme party exercise fits into that preemptive radical inclusion because if we ask everybody, what do you want to do? What do you feel comfortable doing? What are you willing to do at our party? Then more people are going to say, I want to be in charge of the party. More people are going to say, I just want to buy tablecloths and go home, right? But right now we are assuming that certain people want to buy the tablecloths and certain people want to be in charge. And we're only meaningfully asking some people if they want to change, right? Like we have to commit to asking everyone, just like from a mental health psychology perspective, we need to test every kid in this country for learning differences, right? Because there are kids in rural areas, in urban areas, in, you know, in the Bible Belt, in the Rust Belt, you know, in Pacific Northwest, in everywhere that are neurodivergent who aren't getting noticed because they don't fit preconceived notions and thus they're not getting the services they desire. Right. And, you know, IQ tests are a flawed measure. I'll be the first to tell you, but it is a tool that allows us to learn more about how kids operate within systems. And the more we know, the better we can serve them. And I don't see any downside there. I'll go you one better. I believe that everybody needs accommodations, just some people are already getting them. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes to that. Absolutely. Right? And I believe we need to examine how we structure our learning environments, how we structure our extracurricular environments, how we structure our companies, how we structure our nonprofits and our third spaces to ask ourselves which accommodations aren't here yet. Who is getting their accommodations? And who is not? Right. 
Oh, I, I, I might steal that from you. I might steal that. Some people are already okay. getting the accommodations, right? Yeah, you got it, right? No, that's, I mean, that's absolutely true, right? And, you know, and what that does is it normalize, you know, it's the, it, it's actually, it's like the line from Incredibles, like, if everybody's super, nobody will be. But if everybody's special, then everybody's special, right? Let's, let's, let's tweak it a little bit, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like not just special needs, but just needs, right? Right. You know? One of the lines in my business is everybody's needs should get met all the time, including as the leader, yours. Right. And that, that's, it. that's it. It's, it's beautiful. It's radically simple. Right. And I think it's so easy to tie ourselves up in linguistic and logistical knots. Oh, well, what about these million permutations? The permutations are always going to exist. Right. But if we focus on fundamental questions of equity, and accessibility and belonging, then by doing that, we answer a lot of the questions downstream, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of, you know, I, I often joke that there's there's no therapy more effective than giving somebody $500,000 a hug and a, in a sack full of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Right? I'm pretty good at my job. Cheese and a kiss on the forehead, but it's the same basic. Right. Yeah. You can pick the other two things, but let's keep right. the five hundred thousand dollars consistent, right? Because that's because we're in late yeah. stage capitalism in five hundred thousand dollars. Amen. Right? Yes. A lot of problems. Right. And no amount of therapy will change that. You can't right. CBT your way out of systemic racism. Absolutely. Ding, ding, ding. Right. Or out you of know. systemic ableism, or right, or, or you know, or, or systemic neurotypicality. Right. There's, it's. And, and, and for those of you who are listening to this, who maybe feel like we're adding you, Je- I, I don't want to speak for you here, Lila, but I've listened to enough of these that I feel like I'm on board here is this idea. It's like people aren't the problem. Systems. Like we need to fix the way the systems are built, right? I'm not calling out a singular principle. I'm talking about how education in this country is built. Like mm-hmm. those are the things we need to dismantle, Right. I think, you know, I mean, I get to work with amazing educators all over the country, mm-hmm. all over the world. I mean, I am consistently awed and humbled by the amazing public educators in this country, right? I know Absolutely. I sound like a politician right now, but I genuinely mean it. And, and like, I came up through a public education system that saved my butt. And I had some terrible yeah. teachers, but I had a lot of really good ones. Yeah. And that's, it's like, we, you know, we throw our energy at dismantling broken or inequitable systems, Right. And, you know, so if, you know, there are tools and resources to get there. Right. And, and there's nothing, you know, and asking for help and acknowledging that you've fallen short or you didn't know to ask these questions is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine how we could be if we asked those questions and we made the changes and we did the things and we can, you know, one of the things I talk about, you know, this on, on this podcast all the time is how can we make the changes right this minute? Like, what can I walk away from my headphones and go do differently that will yeah. make the world a better place, that will improve equity, that will improve inclusion, that will honor people's gifts and make people less grumpy and resentful toward each other? How can we do that right now? And sometimes the answers are so simple. 
Not easy, but simple. Yeah. Right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, for overcoming the technical difficulties. If people want to find you and hear from you more, what are their options? I know you do a lot of stuff, so I'm not even going to presume to start to list them off. Well, I, you know, I still see clients uh, in my therapy practice. I'm doing more speaking and consulting. So, you know, I, I found that, you know, working with one family helps that family. Working with a school or an organization or a collective or a company helps lots of people. So, um, you know, our website is the neurodiversitycollective.com. Um, if you punch my name, Dr. Matt Zakreski, into Google, it comes up. So that's an easy way to find it. you spell Zakreski for people? Yes. Z-A-K-R-E-S-K-I. We also have a really fun Facebook community, uh, facebook.com slash D-R-M-A-T-T-Z-A-K-R-E-S-K-I. Um, you know, it's neurodivergence and LGBTQ and mental health and nerd culture. And, you know, it's just, it's basically my brain on a Facebook page. So if you've liked what you've, what I've rambled on for this last hour, then you probably like my Facebook page. And if not, then, you know, we put out good stuff anyway. Um, but you know, I, you know, I, you know, what attracted me to this podcast and to you in general is just, I think we're both passionate about asking the hard questions and saying, like, what can we do better? How do we take those next steps? And when, the more we do that, I mean, the better everybody does. So, you know, I mean, if you're somebody who wants to ask those questions or is willing to hear hard answers to hard questions, then, you know, please feel free to reach out. And be in good company doing it. Yeah. I could go cool. on a whole extra tangent about the, the way that being among other people who are doing the thing makes it easy to do the thing, especially when it's not a popular thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I know folks will be looking for you online. It is always a pleasure to get to talk with you and it was a pleasure this time. So I'm sure everyone will follow up with you elsewhere. Thank you. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.